Welcome to the Reimagining Faith podcast with the Pastors Jackson. This is a podcast for seekers, dreamers, and fellow sojourners who are trying to figure out what it means to be followers of Jesus in the 21st century. <sighs> Hi, Nicole. Hi, Zach. How are you doing today? Good. 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 How are you? I'm, I'm doing great. Um, this is part two of our series that we're doing in which we're unpacking the three pillars of Open Table. Um, those pillars are that we are theologically progressive, Pottstown-focused, with Jesus at the center of everything that we do. And so we started, decided to start with the beginning, as one does. And last week we talked about what it means to love scripture, to read scripture, to allow yourself to be uh, changed and challenged by these ancient words of wisdom as a progressive. And I hope that I convincingly showed that uh, the ways that progressives read the Bible are actually very ancient ways of mm. reading the Bible and perhaps more faithful to the original ways that they read the Bible than literal interpretations of Scripture, um, which are relatively recent. I hope I made that case. You should listen to it again and then tell us. <laughs> <laughs> so today, today we wanted to think a little bit more deeply about matters of justice. And how the former informs this. How our reading of scripture not only informs, but gives us kind of a, a mandate to make justice a priority hmm. instead of as like a side note. <laughs> <laughs> instead of as a side note. <laughs> or like if we have to. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've said before and kind of tongue in cheek that I, I it was Jesus who radicalized me. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, I went to Wheaton College, which is like we unironically called ourselves the Harvard of evangelical Christian schools. <laughs> <sighs> like very, very conservative school. My first year there was the first year they allowed dances and oh. only three of them. And they were school sanctioned. And one of them was a hoedown. So, uh, yeah, yeah, we're not quite Bob Jones with their like pink and blue sidewalks, but we weren't too far off from that. Hmm. So I went there as a biblical literalist, fundamentalist Christian and emerged from it as a bleeding heart liberal, <laughs> 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 which is not the I don't know if that's not the, the traditional path for a Wheaton grad, or maybe it is. The expected trajectory. Yeah. Maybe. There you go. Maybe that's not what they had hoped for. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when you read the the Bible through the lens of Jesus, it's not a far reach. <laughs> hmm. Maybe not a reach at all. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking back to there was a summer— I think it was the summer after my junior year 
um, in which I was doing some work for the church that I had grown up in. And one of my closest friends, who is not known for his grasp of subtlety and subtext, a very literal, linear sort of thinking person, um, asked me if I would start a Bible study because they didn't have one for young adults at the church. And so I did, because that's the sort of thing that I did for my whole life. And we met outside at the church and decided to go through the Sermon on the Mount. Because, like I said, he's a very literal thinker and doesn't do well with things like poetry or philosophy, you know, those kinds of things. And he just wanted something that was straightforward. That was like, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to believe? Hmm. So we're like, all right, well, you know, Jesus has this one sermon, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, starting in Matthew 5. It's... um, but I almost definitely did not happen as Matthew has it. Like Jesus didn't stand up there and just say these things in a row. This is likely like a greatest hits album hmm. of all of Jesus's best sayings and teachings put together into one little sermonette. Hmm. That's why it's it's so stuffed full of goodness. Why it's so powerful. Yeah. yeah. And it's probably the only place in the Gospels where Jesus is not speaking in confusing parables and turns of phrases, but he really is just telling you how to live. Mm. And so we read Matthew 5 through 7, and we talked about how Jesus very clearly says that um, you're supposed to not resist an evildoer. You're not supposed to return evil for evil. You're not supposed to uh, even like, it's seemingly not supposed to fight back against somebody who's who's attacking you. Um, it talks about giving things away. It talks about uh, doing charity in secret so that people don't know about it. It talks um, about matters of, of justice and simple living and how to be a compassionate society. And after we had read through it and talked about all of the different, you know, the things that a college student who's learning Greek would love to talk about, <laughs> like, ooh, let me tell you what this word means and what this declension of this indicates and blah, 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 blah. You're adorable. I, <laughs> I'm glad you think so. <laughs> um, after we had gone through all of that, my good friend looked at me with total sincerity. And he was like, all right, well, what's next, boss? What, what are we doing? Where are we going? And I was what's like, the well, plan? what's the plan? That's probably exactly what he said. And was like, well, what do you mean? What's the plan? What are, what, are, what are you talking about? Like, what are we studying next? And he's like, no, I mean, you're the leader. And you just told us all these things that Jesus said we're supposed to do. I just assumed that you were going to follow this up with like a plan. Hmm. <laughs> to go somewhere, to do something, um, to serve somewhere, to fight for something, to protest something, to write letters to some, you, you didn't plan anything out to actually do these things. I just, I assumed that was the next step. I'm sorry. Did, am I overstepping? Am I, did I misunderstand? And <laughs> you just have this way of just in such a simple 
honest way hmm. <laughs> or he wasn't being guilty. He just assumed that because I believed what Jesus said, that it would translate into action. That would actually mean something. Yeah, that yeah. the things that Jesus said, he actually expected us to live out <laughs> and wasn't just like saying, in an ideal world, this is how we'd like to see things done. But mm. that Jesus actually meant you can do these things now. <clears throat> right. <sighs> because that's the way I've kind of been taught the words of Jesus, that we take them very figuratively, that, um, oh, sure, in a perfect world, we wouldn't need war in a perfect world we wouldn't need to all arm ourselves in our homes and you know shoot home intruders and things like that but you know we don't live in a perfect world and so we can't we can't be expected to live those things out i thought we take the words of paul very literally and the words of jesus very figuratively hmm. <sighs> what do you mean by that oh uh well i mean like we said last week paul says that i don't permit a woman to teach so therefore, no woman should ever teach, ever, hmm. for thousands and thousands of years until Jesus comes back. No woman should ever be a pastor because Paul said it. But hmm. yet, Jesus says it is easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And we take that and we go, well, that just means it's probably a little hard. <laughs> Instead right. of, Jesus said it's impossible. Mm. It can't be done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so, well, as I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking maybe it would be helpful to just read even the first 12 verses of Matthew 5. Um, so I'm going to. Um, <laughs> um, and so I would like to share... Um, even just the first 12 verses of Matthew 5 of that Bible study that you you had back in the day. <laughs> um, so this is Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12 from the New Revised Standard Version. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And like, there are a couple, there are a couple ways I think we can translate this, right? Like we can <clears throat> spiritualize these things. Um and, and a lot of folks often prefer uh, Matthew 5 um, than the Sermon on the Plain, which is very similar. Um, there are blessings and woes. So talking about the poor in spirit versus the poor. Um, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness um, rather than who are hungry, mm. who are thirsty. Yeah, the... Um the difference between Matthew and Luke is is kind of stark in that 
Like I imagine what it would have been like if they had asked me to lead um, a Bible study on the Sermon on the Plain instead of the Sermon on mm. the Mount. Yeah. Because the Sermon on the Plain says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when they hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Right. So here I, I read these texts and there is really a call for attention, like hmm. attention to the lives of people who who have need, uh, a, a kind of preferential attention, I guess. Um, not that love is preferential, but I think... Um, attention and and who is centered in our conversations, who is mm. centered in um, in the way that we run society. Uh, we we often um, center people who have money, people who have power, people who have influence. Um, but the people who Jesus continued to center um, were folks who were lowly in all aspects. So lowly in spirit, lowly uh, meaning who are grieving, who who are hurting, who um, maybe are afflicted by mental illness, people who um, who uh, are plagued by addiction. Um, also the folks who who are who are poor, um, who who don't have enough food, who don't have shelter, who don't have um, clean water um, to, to drink, um, people who don't have basic necessities. That is who Jesus centers here, um, centers peacemakers, which um, that sounds really nice, but like <laughs> what it looks like to actually work for peace, to make peace um, is a very uh, tiring and exhaustive uh, job, right? right. So, um not people who accept the status quo, but who say, oh no, like peace isn't something that's just a given. It's something that you have to work for. And so um, blessed are you who do that work because that work uh, is really hard and really difficult. And so um, are people who are merciful, like people who, who, who ex you know, who even offer grace in spite of whether a person apologizes or a person um, is, quote, deserving of it. It takes a certain sense of, a certain sense of spirit-filledness to be able to offer mercy and forgiveness and grace because it calls something out of you. Mm. It doesn't um, again, it's not our natural inclination. <laughs> no, no. And you mentioned 
on Sunday, you read a whole bunch from Dr. King's letter from Birmingham jail, mm. which <clears throat> we then brought up. Um, I decided to bring up as the benediction for the MLK service we had that night with the Pottstown Ministerium. Mm. Um, and that was also brought up by our superintendent, Stephen <laughs> Rodriguez. Um, and who else? Oh, also the the the, the new pastor at um First Pres. At First Presbyterium. Mm-hmm. Um, Reverend Carney. And I thought, well, they all kind of mentioned that we gravitate towards the I Have a Dream speech because it's oh, it's hopeful and lofty and dreamy when we really should be focused on the letter from Birmingham jail, which was Dr. King responding to an open letter written by six leading clergy people who said basically, hey, we agree with your with your aim, which is equality for all, but not your tactics. Mm-hmm that you are pushing society too much and people can't move that quickly and we need to have patience and we need to you know do this in a timely manner through the courts and not through direct action and you're causing more problems and blah 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 and he wrote this really scathing letter which let's pause for a second and and think about how much that's like kicking a man when he's down like Man is literally in a jail cell. And they're like, you had it coming. You really had it coming. You shouldn't have, you shouldn't have given a fuss. Like, Well, how many times have I heard just in Facebook comments over the past couple of years that, oh, of course we believe that Black Lives Matter. We believe that all lives matter. <laughs> but we just don't think that they should be standing in front of traffic and causing these disruptive riots. And they're just going about it all wrong. They've got the wrong slogan. They're excluding people. They need to be more peaceful like Dr. King. They have to be more peaceful like <laughs> Dr. King. It's what he would have wanted. And meanwhile, Dr. King is sitting in a jail cell writing to people who said, we agree with your aim, but not the way that you've gone about doing it. You've caused too much fuss. Because he points out that nobody in power has ever given up power willingly, has always had to be taken from them. Mm. But he writes in there that it is the white Christian moderate who paternalistically tells a man, um, decides the timetable for a man's freedom, I think is how he puts it, and he says that they often prefer order over justice, preferring a negative peace, which is yeah. the absence of conflict, over a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. So, like, Jesus didn't say that in those first 12 verses, but, like, that's the reality of making peace. Right. When Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword, that's what he's talking about. <laughs> right. Right. Um, which doesn't mean that peace is not a goal. But if we pretend that it's easy, are we actually working for peace? Yeah. So it's, it's, th- there is some nuance here that, that is typically, important about all things um, when we simplify things and we make it um, something that we can actually digest. 
um, it's pretty likely that we have, um, it's pretty likely that we, we've taken this thing out um, so that people can make it palatable. Mm-hmm. But that is not who Jesus was. Like he had, if, if you were to read his entire, um, the entire contents of, of this sermon, he says things that um, would make all kinds of people mad. Like he doesn't leave any corner of um, the synagogue untouched. Yeah, and his his main problem with the people in his day was was not just that they were acting unjustly or callously towards the poor. It's that they themselves knew that they were called to do better because Jesus didn't start the justice movement. Hmm. This is not like, I know we've just talked about Jesus. We're Jesus-centered people. But Jesus is not a revolutionary in in the sense that he is inventing all of these things. Hmm. He is very firmly entrenched in first century Jewish thought. You can read passages from the the Mishnah that that just sound like Jesus Hmm. because he is... He is teaching the same moral philosophy that his contemporaries are teaching. The problem is that the leadership is not following it. Right. And all of those moral teachings are grounded in the Torah. Yeah. You know, a lot of folks, <laughs> anytime I meet somebody who says, I'm going to read through the whole Bible in a year, they always start with Genesis and they're like, wow, what a bunch of fun stories. They get to Exodus and they're like, Woo, wow, there's miracles and people are dying and it's getting a little weird, but okay, we're going to keep going. And then they get to Numbers and Deuteronomy and Leviticus and they're like, I'm, I think I'm just going to go to the Gospels now because <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, I, don't, I can't read through 57 chapters of rules and laws about purity and how much it costs when your neighbor accidentally kills your ox and or if you get into a fight with your neighbor and your wife comes over and kicks you in the testicles and then you get permanent injury and how much then does it have to like it's very specific (laughs) laws in there right and so most of us just pass over it but those laws that the very early Israelites codified as their own were shockingly progressive for their time. Hmm. The amount of protections that are in there for vulnerable people are astounding. Um, I know that people like to point to the barbarity of uh, one law in particular in which if a, if a woman is um, up sexually assaulted and it comes to light that um the they are forced into marriage hmm. um, and how awful that is. And it is awful. And I imagine that would be a terrible way to live. But it, it also in those days, nobody would marry her after that. And in other ancient Near Eastern societies, that would have been seen as her fault. And she hmm. would have been ostracized and kicked out and starved. And the fact that then... It, the the blame goes on the man and the mm. responsibility to care for her for her entire life mm. then gets on him like that is that is pretty progressive uh teachings yeah um and there's all kinds of there's accountability like that. there's and a lot of accountability yes and you know, even farmers are told that you don't 
uh, you don't go twice over when you're when you're um, gathering your crops. Mm-hmm. You go through once. You don't come back and see if you dropped anything or forgot anything, because anything after your first go through belongs to the poor. Hmm. And same thing, you are to leave the outer rim of your fields un um, unharvested, because that also belongs to the poor. Hmm. And so you would have harvesters gathering grain and whatnot, and then the poor and widows just kind of walking behind and picking up what they they didn't. Um, if you needed something, you could go to any farmer's field and you could find food. And that was just built into the system is you were not supposed to take everything for yourself. Um, there's a great passage, I think it's in Deuteronomy, that says that if um, if you are sieging a city, you are at war with a city. And a siege is an awful thing in the ancient world in which you just basically build a blockade of troops around a city and you don't Mm. allow supplies to get in or come out. You don't allow, you try to dam up any water sources and you're basically just trying to starve the people out. And it usually takes months or years and it's awful. And in that process, the scripture says, feel free to kill as many people as you want (laughs) because, you know, you're at war with the people. Right. But do not touch their fruit trees. Because you're not at war with nature. You're at war with people. Hmm. And so you would be tempted in the ancient world to then do a scorched earth, you know, yeah. destroy everything so that they can't rebuild. So they have no food, so they have no wood and lumber and fuel. Um, but the Bible clearly says you are at war with people, not with earth. Hmm. God said to the people, if you pollute the land, the land will spit you back out. Hmm. Do not sully the earth beneath your feet. So there's like all these laws peppered throughout that we today would consider like, well, these are pretty progressive laws. Like you've got you've got a lot of very progressive politicians apparently making these laws, um, which of course we skip over because we have no context for. And right. you would need to take several classes to understand just <laughs> how different these are from their other ancient Near Eastern uh, people. But the, the the Israelites and the Jewish people, they are a people dedicated to uh, lifting up the lowly. Mm-hmm. It's a part of their national story that they are slaves who fought for their own freedom and so have justice and mercy for the foreigner, for the the downtrodden, for, for the slave... And every seven years, they're supposed to just let their crops lay fallow. They're supposed to forget de- debts every 49 years. Um, and, you know, like, we are certainly painting, like, a utopia. Like, they got these rules and they followed them. Like, <laughs> these were the ideals that were laid before them. And by ideals, I don't mean, like, if you can. I mean, like this is what I want from you. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not necessarily what what happens and people stray from God. Um, story as old as time. Uh, it's why we have the prophets. It's why we have people who say, you're not listening. Mm. Come back. Come back. You are living in a way um, that it's not supposed to be. You are not living in a way where you are loving your neighbor. You are not living in a way where you are 
having worship of this God who's calling you to take care of each other, who is calling mm. you um, to lives that are are not only just but merciful um, and and gracious. That that I called you to be a blessing. I called I called you to be a blessing, not mm. not just to take for yourselves. And so, um, yeah. You're going to suffer the consequences if you don't do this. And so there, the, the, the whole biblical narrative is, is a story of people who are walking with God and God is walking with and they mess up and they get better and then <laughs> they mess up again and they get better. And there's this always this, this pull and, 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 and distance and it doesn't make the ideals Irrelevant. Yeah. And you mentioned the prophets. The prophets are the people, as Abraham Heschel defines them, as the people who just essentially cannot become accustomed to injustice. Hmm. The rest of us can become callous to them and even callous to our callousness, but they feel afresh all of the injustices all the time. They have God's eyes and ears, essentially. Mm. And so they go crazy. <laughs> and we read in those prophets that the reason, what they're warning Israel and Judah about, they're saying, God will send other nations to take back this promised land from you, to take back this gift. This will happen. And the reasons for this are because you are oppressing the poor. And it, it is always about economic justice. Almost always. I mean, there's the, the bits in there that are also about idolatry and worshiping other gods and all of that. Yes, that's in there. Um, but so much of this, which we don't focus on, is about economic injustice. Hmm. Um, the, uh, the prophet Ezekiel tells us that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah which is so often lifted up as they were destroyed because they were gay, <laughs> um, right? Which is not in the Bible at all, even in Exod um, uh, even in Genesis, it's not there. But he says that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because they were overfed and they uh, exploited and neglected their poor, despite mm -hmm. having more than enough resources for everyone. And so God wiped them off the map. The prophets warn the kings, stop exploiting the poor, or else God, who hears the cries of the poor, will come and take this land back. Like, I, in, in 2016, I was feeling a lot of feelings, <laughs> as, as many of my, 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 my friends are. <laughs> and and uh, I, I felt like I was just seeing a lot of the ugliness that I thought we had moved past. Realized that it had only been locked away in uh, in back rooms. Hmm. And now it was back in the forefront. So much of this ugliness. And I didn't know what to do with it. Um, and it was the pastor of a church that was very politically purple, was trying to make peace and trying not to make too many waves. And perhaps Dr. King would have said that I was preferring a cheap peace to a true one. But one of the things I did is I retranslated the book of Amos, hmm. which is a fiery book. 
but a book full of names and places that we don't have any context for. Hmm. Right. And so if you read, woe to you, Shiloh, for like, what, what does that mean? What is Shiloh? What did they do? So I wrote this translation that took all of those names, researched what they were and what their contexts were, and found modern day analogs for them. Hmm. And the criticisms of those applied those to criticisms of our religion today. And so I wrote this translation and published it anonymously because as I was writing it, I realized this is the kind of thing that would get the Secret Service after me. Hmm. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, and these are the words from uh, Amos chapter 2. Amos has just given a list of, of uh, prophecies against foreign nations at this point. And now he is turning his attention onto Israel. So hear these words from Amos chapter 2. The Zach Jackson translation. <clears throat> Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Washington and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but they have been led astray by the same lies after which their ancestors walked. So I will send a fire on this land and it shall devour your corrupt institutions. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Wall Street and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for another promotion and the needy for a new pair of shoes. They who trample on the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and push the afflicted out of the way so they can ruin their own lives with expensive drugs and cheap sex so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves up in their penthouses, shrines of concrete and glass to the God of money. They lie on silk sheets purchased with the lives they destroy, and in the house of their God they drink wine bought with the fees they imposed on the poor. Yet you yourself proclaim that I have blessed this nation. You have inscribed your paper idols with the half-truth in God we trust. You sing God bless America with undimmed religious conviction, and yet you have forgotten your God. I brought you here from every corner of the earth, refugees, immigrants, slaves, natives, convicts, and outcasts. You were not a nation, but I made you a nation, a beacon of hope and freedom for the dawning of a new age. And I raised up some of your children to be prophets and some of your youths to be ministers. Is it not indeed so, O people of America, says the Lord? But you corrupted my ministers with prosperity and you assassinated my prophets." So I will press you down in your place like a father restrains a petulant child. For flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain their strength, nor shall even the billionaire save their lives. For who, for those who arm themselves with assault rifles shall not stand. Those with brilliant minds shall not save themselves, nor shall those who drive expensive cars outrun their, their fate. And those who demand respect and wield great power shall flee away naked in that day, says the Lord. So it goes on like that for, um, I don't know, how many chapters is Amos? Seven? That sounds, nine. Nine chapters like that. Um, I use names of people, presidents, perhaps, senators, <laughs> um, famous um megachurch pastors, prosperity gospel preachers, that sort of thing. <sighs> Very cathartic. So Amos came around in the lectionary and some people in one of my clergy groups were asking how to preach it. And so I was like, ooh, I did a translation of this and I copied and pasted it into the chat. And then I came back a day later and I was like, why have I not gotten any comments on this? And I went and looked and it's because the Facebook algorithm had removed it. 
and had flagged me for posting in inflammatory content meant to incite violence. <laughs> so then I posted a link to where I had anonymously posted it. And then Facebook blocked the entire domain because, again, it broke the community rules of inciting violence against others. Hmm. And I tried to send it then in a private message to someone who asked for it, and it wouldn't work. It blocked it there, too. So then I had to make a Google Doc and share the <laughs> Google Doc with people because Google apparently hasn't censored me yet. But like all it took was changing the names and places of the actual Bible. And Facebook decided it was too controversial. <laughs> and think how many times, for how many years, are those passages read in church and nobody bats an eye? So when I hear the word social gospel or social justice gospel or whatever, it makes me mad. Because it's just the gospel. It's just the gospel. Yeah. It is the gospel, and it is the entire history of the Israelite people from which we are uh, a branch grafted on. Mm. It is in our roots. It is in our DNA to be a people set apart to fight for the dignity and value of every human being. It's just baked into the story. I don't know how you can be a Christian and not care about other people in that way. Yeah. I mean, probably in the same way that um, the Israelites <laughs> lost their way. It's not a story that is is new. Um, and, and, and the stakes are just as high, mm -hmm. right? Um, so take this into our, our own context and think about the things that are kind of, uh, that are plaguing our society right now. Um, there's a few, a handful. A couple, of, one or of two. Problems yeah. in which we, the church, have lost our way, um, who have lost sight of what is, what, what is actually important to Jesus in this time. Um, in our community, there is a, a glaring situation uh, that is happening that has really got everybody's attention, um, both the religious and the not religious, um, the, the government and uh, the people of, of this community. And that is, um, what is our responsibility to our unhoused neighbors? Mm. It's a political issue. It is a societal issue. It is a economic issue. It is a personal issue. Um, and it's one that our society tries really hard to weigh how to mm. respond and, and if it is our responsibility to respond. And if it is our responsibility, what is our responsibility? And... Um, if you live in Pottstown, you this you have heard about this because it is um, a very, very, very contentious um, conversation uh, between the the churches and um, the local government and the local businesses mm. and um, homeowners and um, the there are all kinds of complexity. And 
and issues connected to this. But at the heart of the matter, it seems to be asking what our priorities are, right? So so we're coming face to face to it, with it, and we're being forced to ask ourselves, are we concerned about revitalization? Are we concerned about houseless neighbors? Um, Who is our neighbor? which is is questions of, well, are they actually from Pottstown or are they being <laughs> bussed in from around the, the, the county? If only there was um, a well-known parable we could quote. <laughs> right. Like, is there, you know, is, is, is it our response? Whose responsibility, first of all, is it to care for these folks? Um, do they deserve care? Mm-hmm. Um, or have they put themselves in this situation and therefore we can wipe our hands clean? Um, and who's going to pay for it? And what are we going to do about all of the things that happen when you take care of houseless persons? Um, and, and, and then the conversation becomes the homeless and not people who don't have homes. Yeah. We, we put the, the social uh, situation before the person and therefore we don't have to um, care about the dignity of the person. Um, hmm. And, and, and I, I think, you know, as we've been following, as we've been trying to discern our way and what a faithful response would be, it is complex. Mm. It isn't it isn't a cut and dry, a um, simple solution, but something that is calling us, calling us out, calling out our best selves, um, because that is what's going to make the necessary changes and the necessary actions. Right. I mean, Dr. King love to preach from that story of the Good Samaritan, mm-hmm. which I tongue and cheek mentioned just then. But the point being that it's not just a moral lesson about how we are to care for our neighbor, regardless of what nationality that neighbor may be, or if it was their fault they found themselves in trouble or not, but that we need to start as a society re-examining the road itself. Mm. And asking ourselves why so many travelers are being beaten and left there and perhaps create systems that fix that road so people can travel more safely. Mm. That this work requires justice as well as charity. That charity is is work that takes care of the immediate need. Right. It's usually based out of a sense of empathy or compassion that we're really sad that somebody's suffering. <laughs> and so, yeah, I can spare a dollar fifty and I can help you get a cup of coffee and maybe feel better today, you know, and that's great. That's a part of it. But then there has to be another element of it that is uh, that is not just based in empathy or compassion, but that is based in a deep rooted sense that that which is wrong needs to be righted. And that it is a moral wrong that there should be systems in place which create this sort of inequality. Mm-hmm. And people don't need the amount of riches that they have. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I am, uh, yes, I'm an American. And so I am f- fabulously wealthy compared to the rest of the world. Having the fact that I own my own car puts me in like the top 3% of the mm-hmm. world's population or something like that. Um, but when I when I read that two thirds of all of the new wealth created since the pandemic has gone to the top one percent, I think, for what? <laughs> what are you doing with that? Why do you need another 
yacht which nests inside of your other yacht. <laughs> and I think I think of like the words of James that you know says, "Oh woe to you rich people that your your wealth is crumbling and the moths are eating it and your you know your very soul is rusting away." Um, what good is it to have gained the whole world and lost your soul? I mean, that's Jesus. That's not, that's not <laughs> him. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, I, I think that these systems that are in place that have created these problems need to be addressed. And those can't be addressed by just simple appeals to feeling bad about something. Right. Right. They have to be rooted in something deeper. Mm-hmm. And that I think is what the prophets are calling us to. And if we, we in the church, and I don't want to get too judgy because I know I'm not perfect. And I know I have, there have been plenty of times, even as a pastor, that I have shied away from the hard work because of the conflict that comes from it. But I mean, it just turn to any of the prophets. Start with Isaiah chapter one. <laughs> okay. Uh, Isaiah chapter one. Um, Oh, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats, and I might add of really pretty liturgies and Christmas songs and (laughs) Easter celebrations and special offerings. Um, When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless worship. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, Christmas Eve services and Easter services and special assemblies, they are wearisome. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. I'm not listening to you. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourself. Make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight and stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Here we go. This is all it is. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. That's it. I mean, that's it. Right? Right? That's the, that's the core. That's the that's the... the bottom of this thing, right? Micah says the same thing. Uh, the, the the true religion, good religion that is right in front of God is to simply act justly, love mercy, to walk humbly with our God, right? To plea for the case of the, of the poor and the widows and the orphans. Jesus himself says, at the end of all things, you will stand before a great throne of judgment and you will be judged. And I used to, I mean, I had an image of a sparkling white God sitting at a literal um, throne. This coming from one of those chick tracks, you know what I'm talking about? Um, And in my mind, God judged people on how much they sinned. Right. And so, you know, you looked lustfully upon that person. And so now that is a mark against you. You committed, you stole from a store, you had unmarried sex, you know, like stuff like that is what's going to cut you out. Mm -hmm. But Jesus says that he will welcome those in who clothed the naked, who fed the hungry, and who visited those in prison. And that those people who claim to be righteous but didn't do those things will be like, oh, Jesus, we didn't see you. Where were you? Hmm. And Jesus is like, I was in prison. (laughs) I was naked and I was hungry. And you ignored me. Oh, you righteous religious people, you ignored me. But there I was. 
the whole time right in front of you and you ignored me. Like that's, that's his criteria for getting into heaven. <laughs> not, yeah. I mean, not getting into heaven. Um, that's a different episode, but like that is Jesus's <laughs> criteria. We are making this so much more complicated than it has to be. Mm. Yeah. And I can't, obviously can't apply that to um, civic spaces um, because the government doesn't run on Christian ideals, despite the fact that many Christians would like it to. But I have to run my church that way, and I have to run my life that way, and I have to call on any politician who claims to be touting Christian values to live that way. And this is why prophets don't usually die of natural causes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, was assassinated at 39 years old. Hmm. Jesus made it to 33. So, um, John made it less than that, 31 maybe. So I think we probably could, could keep going, um, and probably will. Uh, we didn't and, even talk about specific justice issues. Right. Right. Like the ones that are near and dear to the mission of our church, that we right. are seeking to be anti-racist, that we are uh, open and affirming the LGBTQ community, that we mm -hmm. are fighting for uh, the rights of the planet mm -hmm. um, and for our climate justice and for the lives that it affects. And also working for um, fair and equitable funding for um, the public schools in our Commonwealth, um, which mm. is a an issue that is very near and dear to Pottstown um, as a community that is severely underfunded and has mm -hmm. been severely underfunded for a very long time. It, it seems really important that at the heart of what we do as a faith community responds, not reacts, responds, that seeks solutions and um, actions that meet the needs that directly impact the people in our community. Um, I think that is why there is such an uproar around houselessness mm -hmm. and, and around education funding uh, because it directly impacts our people, mm. our neighbors. Racism is wrapped up in a lot of it. And we feel very, very compelled that these need to be things that the church is responding to. And so we're figuring out that as we go along. Um, we're figuring out how to show up. And we want, we want who we are for the fight for justice to be a part of that, um, to be intimately involved um, and seeking God's best for every one of our neighbors, um, especially those who are on the margins, especially people who do not have their basic needs met, who do not have equal access to very important resources. One of the things that we're always asking ourselves is in this in this context, where would Jesus be? Hmm. What would Jesus be speaking up about? And how would he be attending to the very people that these things impact? Hmm. Yeah. This is a rule of nature. 
not just a rule of society, that reciprocity means success for everyone. And that's the problem with invasive species is they take, but they don't give back. Hmm. And so they end up destroying their own food source and then harming themselves afterwards. But when you have ecosystems that have had, you know, in some cases, millions of years to adjust to each other, to co-evolve, the, the most successful are the ones that are the most wrapped up in that blanket of reciprocity. I mm -hmm. think about trees that make, I mean, they're, they're in their leaves using light and carbon dioxide and water, create glucose, the sugar. But like, I don't know the exact percentage off the top of my head. It's something like 75% of that sugar does not go to the tree. It goes to the fungi under the soil hmm. so that it can grow, so that the fungi can break down the minerals in the rocks and in the decaying uh, animal and plant matter on the on the surface so that it can get the... Uh, the nutrients that the tree needs to grow because the tree can't make those things. So mm -hmm. the tree makes the sugar, which it gives to the fungus and the fungus makes, which the fungus can't make. And then it gives the nutrients to the tree, which the tree can't make. And together they thrive, hmm. but they don't thrive on their own. Right. They can't thrive on their own. Um, and ev every little aspect of every little ecosystem, it's just, everything is interconnected and everything works for the benefit of everything else. Hmm. Um, and it has to. And that's how life thrives. That's just the way of the world. And we as pack animals, hmm. we as social primates, uh, we're that to the nth degree. You know, nobody in the animal kingdom has a more social brain than we do. And to our benefit and apparently to our detriment because it's really hmm. hard for us to extend that same sense of reciprocity beyond our own immediate tribe and our immediate people. Hmm. We have evolved to care deeply about of roughly 150 people hmm. by the size of our brain. And we need to evolve morally and hmm. spiritually so that we can apply those same values of reciprocity that we have for our immediate family to our neighbors that may not live next to us, but mm. that are, share the same planet with us. Um, and I, I think we need that or else we are going to destroy ourselves. Mm. Not to be fatalistic or anything. <laughs> we have the capability. We can do it. Humans are great. We are amazing creatures. Mm. I think we can do it. We just need to evolve spiritually. Hmm. Yeah. Movements start when a roughly 10% of the people get on board with an idea. Hmm. That's all it takes. 10% of the population gets on board with an idea, believes it truly, and then it starts to take hold. Hmm. So we don't need much. We just need 10% of the population to be on the same wavelength, hmm. and then movements can start. So that's like a snippet. That's a snippet. You should come of, to church on a Sunday. This is the kind of stuff we talk about all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I think we are really um, continuing to find out who we are um, by that which is touching our hearts, right? So um, I don't know that we're going to get it, quote, right. I don't know that we're um, going to 
figure it out. Um, but that is why we're doing this together. This is why we are doing this as a community of faith and not a pastors of faith, um, because we don't know everything and we don't know all of the places to which God is calling us to. But this is something that is at the core of, of who uh, we are feeling called to be um, and our community that continues to grow and continues to um, deepen is trying to keep an eye, an eye to a heart too. Mm. Yeah. So next week <laughs> we will continue talking about what it means to be theologically progressive. Um, but we're going to talk about something that is near and dear to my heart, which is how we reconcile modern science mm. with a belief in the supernatural. Easy peasy. Uh, Easy peasy, lemon squeezy, yeah. right? This is the uh, issue that, man, so many people seem to have, at least so many people as they grow up and into their teens. Mm -hmm. And this is when they leave the church, when they're like, I can't believe in an invisible sky god and, mm -hmm. you know, worry about whose imaginary friend is better <laughs> while also learning about the beginning of the cosmos. It mm -hmm. seems like this is fantastical fairy tales. So we're going to dive into that, and I'm going to prove to you and Nicole that you don't need to be a nerd to care about these things <laughs> or to have insights into them or have an intelligent, important things to say about them. Perfect. <laughs> Until then, uh, once again, we want to thank our supporters on Patreon for making this podcast possible, as well as all of you who join us um, in whatever podcast feed that you have, those of you who have left a review on iTunes or on Spotify, those of you who have shared an episode on social media or just told a friend about it, um, that is the best way to spread a podcast. Even in these days with these major podcasts out there, you can spend all kinds of money and still the best way to spread the word about a podcast is through word of mouth. Hmm. And so if you think that the sorts of things that we're talking about are the kinds of things that are important for other people to talk about or to hear about or to know that they're not alone in feeling these ways, then please send this podcast to somebody that you know and care about. That would be a huge help to us. 